Now we'll read and study Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 to 31, the sixth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. On the sixth day, God fills the earth, the dry land, with animals and with man. Animals and man. Verse 24. Let the earth, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. Notice here, on the earth, three kinds, three categories of living creatures after their kind. The cattle, which would be domestic animals, creeping things, those animals that creep and crawl on the ground, close to the ground, and then the beasts of the earth, the wild animals, are in the Bible known as the beasts of the earth. So both domestic and wild animals and all the creeping animals, God created all of them on this day, on the sixth day. And then verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. These creatures he made, as it asserts in verses 24 and 25, after their kind, after their kind, the way that they are created. That is, crocodiles become more crocodiles. Elephants reproduce elephants that way. Cows reproduce cows. This is the way God intended it to be. Snakes reproduce snakes. Snakes don't reproduce rats. They reproduce snakes. This is the way it is. And this is the way God intended it to be. There is no crossing. There is no uh, rising from one status or from one level, from one area or one species to another species. This is not the way it happens. This is not what God intended. He made everything to re reproduce after their kind, even the land creatures, the land animals in that way. And what he did, he made them, he created them, and he calls all of this good. The fact that God made them reproduce after their kind is also included in the goodness of God. Amen. Even though there are many who deny this and say, no, this is not the way it was, this is not the way it is, that they don't reproduce like this, and they say this is not good, it's not good to believe that they reproduce after their kind, 
That's contrary to God, because God says it's good for him to create them and to create them to reproduce after their kind. Then he reaches the culmination of his creation. On the sixth day, he has prepared from days one to six, partly in, verse, uh, in day six, in verses 24 to 25, the land animals, he has produced all of this creation in order to pre uh, present and create man and to give man all that God has created. And then we will see in Genesis chapter 2, he will place Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to enjoy God's creation and even the best part of God's creation in the Garden of Eden. Then, the creation of man. Verses 26 to 28. 26 to 28, the creation of man. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Verse 26, God deliberates or God announces, let us make man in our image. He announces that he wants to create man, but not just create man, create him in our image. That is in the image of God. He wants to create him. He wants to create him to rule over all the other animals that he has created. Verse 26, the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, cattle, every creeping thing. He wants man to rule over all of them. So man will be superior to them. They will be superior to them because they are created in God's image. Verse 27, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We observe a few truths here. One, it says that God created man in his own image. There are commentators who assert that God and other gods consulted each other in the heavens, in a pantheon, in order to create the universe, to create man on the earth as well. That the gods were in consultation with each other. That's a polytheistic and pagan view of the world. There are commentators, many of them claiming to be Christian, who hold to this view. And they say that that's what's going on in this passage because they say that there was initially in the Bible a polytheistic worldview, belief in many, many gods, and then over time throughout the Old Testament, gradually they began to believe in only one God, and then by the time you get into the New Testament, they started to deify Christ to some extent, and then by the third and fourth century of, of our time in, um, uh, in, in the year of our Lord, A.D., the 300s, especially 325, Council of Nicaea and onward, the Christian church devised and invented the Trinity. This is the typical argument of many, many commentators of the Bible. But that's not the case. Throughout the Old Testament, there is the belief in only one true God. Yes, there are many other gods, but they are false gods. But there's only one true God. The other ones exist in various false forms, either in the mind of men, or by idols, or by demons being worshipped as gods, or by men considering themselves gods. There are many other false gods, but there's only one true and living God, the Creator. And it says, 
quite explicitly in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In his own image. That's a singular, solitary image of God. In the image of God, it says, repeats it in verse 27. In the image of God, he created him. So man was created in the image of God, the God of the Bible. Furthermore, we should also remove the possibility of God creating with the help of angels. God and angels did not create the world. Angels rejoiced when the world was created, according to Job 38.7, but angels are not participants. They are not creators. Not in this verse, nor any other verse of the Bible, are angels creators. The only creators we know are the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Angels do not create. In fact, Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not ministering spirits sent out to render salvation for the, or excuse me, render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That's what they are doing. They are doing that for our benefit, but they are not creators. They are servants. Furthermore, we see in this passage, verses 26 to 27, that God created man. It says it in the singular because the biblical term here, and we will see this in Genesis 5, the biblical term here for man or mankind includes male and female. Verse 27. Man in the singular is him. He created him. But this man is male and female. He created them. This is the biblical terminology. See Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 2. Genesis 5, 2. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them and named them man. Man in the day when they were created. He called male and female, and the first two male and female were Adam and Eve. He created them and called them man. This is why we in English refer to people or humans as man or mankind or men in the plural. We say it like that because the Bible says it that way. The Hebrew language says it that way, and therefore we say it that way. We as believers in the Bible and the Christian faith. This goes completely contrary to the philosophies and the religions and the ideologies of today that seek to make a, a, a blur in the distinction between male and female and, and they insist that we should not call male and female together man or men or mankind. They insist that we should never say when we're speaking in general terms, he or he who believes in me. Instead of saying he who believes in me, we should just say whoever believes in me. We should not never say he, because that would be sexist. That would be misogynist. That would be um, unkind toward women. Actually, that ideology is from the devil. Amen. Feminism, feminism or egalitarianism is from the devil because God says it here. And if they contradict God, then they are presuming to know better and wiser than God. God intended for us to understand the male and female relationship among humans in a certain way and to understand our solidarity, that we are created by God. 
And he chose to use these terms to signify that solidarity, that union, that oneness, that male and female among men that we have with God. So if God calls male and female man, then we should call male and female man and not seek, uh, seek for circuitous uh, ways in order to say, well, no, let's always call each other humans or humankind. Or whenever we are writing papers, let's say he sometimes and say she at other times, or let's just say she most of the time or all the time in our papers whenever we're referring to people in general. Or they. Let's just say they, they in the plural all the time and get away from saying he or him. No, the Bible does that. And because the Bible does that and God is the author of the Bible, we ought to repeat what God does because God did it with a purpose, as I said before, with the purpose of identifying our solidarity, but also the rank or the headship of the man over the woman. That starts in Genesis 1. It's repeated in Genesis 2. We will see next time. And in other places in Scripture, this truth is there. And he explicitly says in verse 27, male and female, he created them. This means that males cannot militate and fight against females and say you are a lesser creature. And neither can females fight and antagonize males and say that they are lesser creatures. Both of these philosophies go on. Both of these ideologies go on where the, their, uh, people are seeking for ways to have conflict between male and female, and the other, the, the one that they consider the lesser, they denigrate them and consider them like animals. No, females should not consider males as animals, and males should not consider females as animals. We are all created in the image of God. Not only that, in verse 28 it says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the second time we're told that God blessed. The first time was in verse 22 when God blessed the sea creatures and air creatures. And now here in verse 28, God blesses man. He blesses male and female. God blessed them in the plural, that is the male and the female, and God said to them, to both of them, he blesses, but then he announces a command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's the first part of it. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Man is supposed to reproduce and reproduce abundantly. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The whole earth, fill the whole earth and subdue it, rule over it, control it, use it for your benefit. Then the second part, verse 28, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man, though created last, was created in order to be able to be the head and ruler and king over the rest of creation, including all the animals, all the animals, land animals, air animals, sea creatures, all these were for man's benefit, for man to use for his well-being.
Then, verse 29. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God gave the vegetation, the green plant, to man and animals for their livelihood, for their food. They were to consume the green plant and the fruits and all of the vegetation for their benefit. This is the way God originally designed the creation of man and the consumption of man to take place this way, man and animals. So what God said to that needed to happen, it says in verse 30, and it was so. God desired it, he commanded it, and that's the way it was at the very beginning. Lastly, verse 31. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. It was very good. Everything God did, everything God made, however he ended the sixth day, when whatever is there, he see, sees it all and he calls it very good. Very good. That means that there's not an ounce of evil. There's not an ounce of misery. There's not an ounce of death. There's no mourning and tears and pain, nothing like that. Everything is very good. The way that God created the universe is the way God will ultimately have the universe upon the return of Christ. After the return of Christ and the day of judgment, He will create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what He did in this initial creation. And finally it says, And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Six days of creation. Then chapter 2, the first part of chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, will describe the seventh day, the Sabbath day, when God did not create anything but ceased from creation. So verses 24 to 31 describe the sixth day, the creation of land animals and man. Let's now review a few points that we need to emphasize. These are questions that usually arise from this passage. The first one has to do with verse 26. Why does the text say, let us make man in our image? Us and our image. Who are the us and who are the are? Now this verse itself does not say how many persons there are. But from other scriptures, we know that there are three persons of the Trinity. And we also know that there is no pantheon of gods. And God did not create with angels. He did not create with man or anything else or anyone else. God alone created. If we start with the assumption God alone created, and we seek to find out from the rest of the scriptures who is God, we know that the Father is called God, Galatians 1.1. God the Father, and that God is the Creator, as we said earlier, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, that He is the Creator of, of all things. And then we also saw earlier that the Son is called God and Creator in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and verse 10, Colossians 1, 15 to 17, and Hebrews 1, 2. The Son is Creator. We also saw that the Holy Spirit is creator. Genesis 1-2 says the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And Job 33-4, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. 
from these passages we know that the us and the are of let us make in our image must be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who created man. Then, let's see elsewhere where this phrase occurs. This, this uh, pronoun or the possessive pronoun, our image. Let us make man in our image. Other places in the Bible where this is found are Genesis 3.22. Behold, the man has become like one of us, the Lord God said, Genesis 3.22. Genesis 11, verse 7. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Genesis 11.7. Come, let us go down. And finally, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. This passage, along with a cross-reference, will confirm what we're saying here about this being a reference to the Father, Son, and Spirit. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, we'll read verses 1 to 10. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Notice the voice of the Lord, and also chapter 6, verse 1, I saw the Lord sitting. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? The Lord says that. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive, keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and repent, and be healed. Notice a few important points made here. That is, Isaiah the prophet sees the Lord lofty and exalted. And the seraphims call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As well, verse 5 says, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then I heard the voice of the Lord, verse 8, saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who did Isaiah see? Who did he see? It says the Lord, but specifically, did he see the Father, the Son, or the Spirit? John chapter 12. John chapter 12 will tell us definitively. John 12, 37. 12, 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him, that the word of the Lord, uh, excuse me, that the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, 
He has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. If you are reading the NIV, the NIV in verse 41 says, These things Isaiah said because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of him. It's quite evident that that's what Isaiah is saying, or that's what John is saying about what Isaiah saw. That Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus in the temple, and he is the one that said, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? It was Jesus. So if the us term can be a reference to Jesus and the Father, it's not a stretch to say that it's a reference to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is that in Isaiah 6, and it is that also in the book of Genesis. By the way, also John quotes in John 12, 38, he quotes Isaiah 53, 1, which is a messianic passage. It refers to Christ. Isaiah chapter 53 all refers to Christ. So he quotes and alludes to parts of Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53, and he says, Isaiah saw Christ. Therefore, when it says, let us make man in our image, it is speaking of the Trinity. It is the Trinity here. Next issue that comes up in this passage has to do with verse 27. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. What is the image of God? What is the image of God? Let's see that the image of God has to do with our immaterial nature, our inner man and its correspondence and its ability to commune with God. That, it, it, that is, it is intellectual, it has intellect, it has emotion, it has will, it has the ability to reason and commune with God, to know God in a way that the animals and the plants and the rocks cannot know God and do not know God. We have that ability. That is the image of God. Let's see that that is the case. Genesis chapter 1, we've already seen. Now Genesis 5, 1 to 3. Genesis 5, 1 to 3. This passage is important because after the fall, it is said that the image remains, or the image and likeness remain. By the way, image and likeness are synonyms of the same thing. When it's saying image of God, it means he, he man, is like God. So in what sense is he like God? Right. As I said before, we have this ability to commune with him. 5 verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the, in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. This passage shows that this image or likeness of God was not something restricted to Adam and Eve, right. though they had it perfectly when they were first created. But this image is imperfectly transferred after sin 
is transferred from Adam to Seth. That it is something that all humans have. All people have that image of God. As well, chapter 9, verse 6. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. God made man in the image of God, and so a murderer should be put to death, for in the image of God he made man. That means that the innocent man, who is the victim of the murderer, he was put to death unrighteously, unjustly, then the murderer should be put to death because the innocent man possessed the image of God, and the only thing that would be equal retribution or just retribution would be if the murderer, who also possesses the image of God, is executed because he put an innocent man to death. That means that the innocent man, whether he's a Christian or not, believer or not, possesses the image of God, and the murderer possesses the image of God and should be put to death because that is the only payment or repayment that can equate to the innocent man's death. They all possess the image of God. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, teaches us, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. The man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. He's not saying that the woman is not the Im in the image of God, but it's just saying that the man is the glory of God and the woman is the glory of the man. That's all that that passage means. And lastly, to confirm that this image is universal and continues, is James chapter 3 and verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. James 3, verse 9, says that. The point is to say that whether people are good or evil, righteous or wicked, Christians or not, this image of God has remained within us. We're not talking about a perfect image, right. because we know that Adam and Eve had that before they sinned. We're talking about now, for us, that even the imperfect image of God we still possess. We, as men, possess, uh, possess that. Then secondly, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. The second point that we need to make is that this image can only be restored to perfection in Christ. Right. Only to perfection in Christ. Not that that perfection is reached on the earth, but that's what we strive to do on the earth after our conversion and until we see Christ face to face. For it says in Romans 8, 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The purpose of our redemption is to be conformed to the image of his Son. As well, Colossians 3, Colossians 3, we'll start at verse 9, 3, 9, our verse is verse 10, 3, 9 to 11. 
Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but, all, but Christ is all and in all. Colossians 3.10 The image that has been distorted and perverted after the fall in us needs to be redeemed in Christ, and we need to conform to the image of Christ until we meet him face to face. Now, this inner man, I spoke of the inner man that is being transformed and conformed. Romans 7.22. Romans 7.22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. The law of God is in the inner man. This must be immaterial. This must be unseen, invisible. And it must be the new creation we are in Christ. Right. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That we are new creatures in Christ. That new creation has started on the inside and is now conforming to the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. The inner man is being renewed day by day. How? Because we have the law of God there. The law of God, the new heart, the new creation. And lastly, Ephesians 3, 16. Ephesians 3, 16. This is a prayer, prayer for the church that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The inner man being renewed. All right, and then to make a clear distinction, the Bible does not consider animals to have the image of God. Men are superior to animals because they possess the image of God, but animals do not possess the image of God. Let's see the distinction the Bible makes. The first example is Job 35. Job 35 and verse 11. Job 35, 11. We'll start at verse 9. Verse 9. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, Where is God, my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? This, this verse is asserting that God teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and we are wiser than the birds of the heavens. Why? How? Because of the image of God. Because we have that image, He treats us that way. Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verse 9. 32.9. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding. Which have no understanding. Notice that. They don't have rational capabilities. They are creatures of instinct, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. 
We should not behave like horse or mule because they don't have understanding. Then Jonah, in the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. Remember that Jonah had concern for the plant. He had concern for the plant. And he did not have concern for the Ninevites. He did not, he did, and then he did not at the end. At the end of the book. And God confronts him on this sin. When God was confronting him, God made a plant produce and rise up overnight and create shade for him in the heat of the sun. And he was happy about that plant because of the heat of the shade, or the, the shade in the heat of the day. But then the next day, God made the plant wither and die quickly. And Jonah was angry. So God says, Jonah chapter 4, we'll read verses 9 to 11. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? In this verse, Jonah had more compassion on a plant than people, yeah. right? More on plants than people. And even God says, shouldn't he have compassion on the people and the animals above the plant? And shouldn't Jonah know the difference and realize? Why the animals? Because they are living creatures. They have blood like we do and breath like we do. That's why. As it says in Genesis 1, 24, 25, they are living creatures just as we are living creatures. So God has compassion on animals more than plants, and Jonah should have understood that. But ultimately, he has concern for the people, the people above the plants. Now, the Lord Jesus, Mark chapter 6, excuse me, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We will not read the whole passage, which is 25 to 34. 25 to 34. But this is when Jesus tells us that we should have faith and not be anxious about God providing for us. And then he compares us to animals and plants. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Are you not worth much more than they? And then he says in 28, And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Matthew 10, 31. Matthew 10, 31. We'll actually begin at verse 29. 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. 
Therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. You are of more value than many sparrows. And then Matthew 12, 12. Jesus confronts his adversaries because he healed or helped on the Sabbath. And Matthew 12, 12. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. More value is a man than a sheep. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. Second Peter 2, 12. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. The false teachers are like unreasoning animals, Peter says. And also Jude, verse 10. A similar statement. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Like unreasoning animals, those who won't listen to the truth are like that. But obviously we see a comparison between unreasoning animals and reasoning people, that we should be reasoning people. This is what the Bible means by image of God. Furthermore, from Genesis chapter 1, another point that we must discuss is Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God told Adam and Eve to reproduce abundantly. To procreate abundantly, to have many children. And this he did not intend to remain with Adam and Eve only. After the fall, after the entrance of sin in the world, in Genesis chapter 9, twice in Genesis chapter 9, God instructs Noah and his sons to do the same. 9, one And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. As well, verse 7. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. He expected them to reproduce and to populate the earth abundantly. We see that children are a blessing in the Psalms. Psalms one twelve and one thirteen. And Psalms 127 and 128 count children to be a blessing. We also see in the New Testament that we ought to be focused on marriage and family and have children in family, in the family setting. For example, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy 2, But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self Restraint. He's explaining here that the sphere of the, the woman's life, and this he's assuming a married woman's life, is to bear children and continue in faith, love, and sanctity with self-restraint. To practice godliness and raise a godly home is what he says. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, 14, Therefore I want younger widows to get married, 
bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. And also Titus. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Titus 2, 3 to 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. These passages are very clear in asserting that children are a blessing, marriage should include the bearing of children, and they should be raised up to know the Lord. This is the sphere in which people should conduct day-to-day -day life and activities right. in marriage and family and have children. We have to recover this truth of the Bible or these truths of the Bible because we live in a day when people are forbidding marriage, people are postponing marriage, people are considering marriage to be a burden, mar marriage to be old-fashioned, marriage to be something that will restrict them and constrict them and not enable them to have a free life, a prosperous life, so on and so forth. And we also hear from environmentalists. Environmentalists who, in the name of protecting the environment, they're, they're really not doing that, Amen. but in the name of protecting the environment, they say that we should not have children. No children in many countries encourage their people to have two children or one children or one child. They, that's what they do. And many of them also push off marriage and say, don't get married when you're 20, 25, 30 years old. Don't do that. Just, just wait. Wait until after 30 if you want to get married or something. But if that's for you. Otherwise, no need to get married. As well, we kill our children, right? Yeah. We kill our children, murder our children through abortion. Because we are, have this mindset that families and children are a curse rather than a blessing. Why do we take pills to prevent conception? I thought pills from doctors were given to prevent diseases and to promote health. So if pills are given to prevent children, then we are considering children to be harmful to our health and a disease. And these were invented only in the last, whatever, 100, 150 years. These kinds of means to prevent the birth of children and the raising of them in a godly way. So this is foreign to the Bible. We have to recover what is taught in Genesis and all the way throughout the Bible and into the New Testament. Recover the blessing of children. They are a blessing not only when they're young, but even when they're older because we need them to refine us and test us so that we might grow and mature both in life and in the faith. Okay, then we also need to note that though God initially said that the plants were for consumption, that changed in Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, God says in Genesis 9 verse 3, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Genesis 9, 3-4. After 
the flood, God ordained for us to eat meat. For us to eat meat. And that is the way it is today. Now we do have, for the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, a temporary suspension of certain kinds of food to eat and not to eat. A difference is made between the holy and the profane, the clean and the unclean foods. Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 explain. But that has been abolished. Now, now that Christ has come in the new covenant, that has been abolished. It was there in the old covenant as a picture of sin and redemption of Christ. And all of those things are types and shadows of what Christ would come to do when he fulfilled the law. That's what the New Testament teaches. There is a lengthy argument about the ritual and dietary laws in Hebrews chapters 5 to 10 and also Hebrews 13 verse 9. There are various statements made about the ritual law throughout those passages in Hebrews. But also, we have plenty of other places. Mark 7, 19, Jesus it, uh, makes a statement and then Mark records, thus he declared all foods clean. Acts chapters 10 and 11, Peter was hesitant to eat unclean foods and God made it clear to him that he was now permitted to do so. Though he was not accustomed to do so, he was now permitted to do so and when he was with the Gentile, he should have been open to doing so, to eating unclean foods. Moreover, we have 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. This passage clearly asserts that everything created by God is good, now in the new covenant. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God, which we have cited a few of those passages. The Word of God sanctifies it and our prayer. When we pray and thank God and bless God for it, that also sanctifies the food. So therefore, we should not advocate abstaining from foods. And the verse also, verse 3 says, do not forbid marriage. Do not do either of those, and if we do those, then we are practicing the doctrines of deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, and we fall away from the faith. This is serious business. Yep. We have to understand even these aspects of the Christian life correctly, otherwise we'll be following Satan, it says. Other passages for your information to consult will be Colossians 2, 16 to 23, and Romans chapter 14. Passages that have a bearing on this issue. So now, all foods are clean. And the last point I'd like to make and emphasize is in Genesis 1.31, it said that God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. That means there was no sin. 
No chaos, no disease, no death in the world, no evil in the world. Nothing like that existed until then. Up to that point, nothing like that existed. It's not until Genesis chapter 3, when sin comes into the world, that there's sin and death and evil. The curse or punishment for sin happens because Adam and Eve sin, which caused that death to come into the world. This is confirmed in Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. We all sinned in Adam, but it says one ma- through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. Death does not precede sin. Sin precedes and causes death to come into the world. That means that we have to believe that in the Genesis account, corroborated by this passage in Romans 5, that there is no death, no evil, no sin, no misery, no chaos, no cancer, no disease of any kind, no animals eating animals, no men fighting each other. Nothing like that happened until Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. Then it produced curse, uh, the curse and misery and death, conflict and everything else that goes on. One more place, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Here too the apostle asserts that by a man came death, which means that there was no death before that man sinned. And that man is Adam, verse 22. For as in Adam all die. If this is true, then there is no death before Adam's first sin. There is no death in the world. It's impossible for that to fit in Genesis chapters 1 to 3, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, and any other passage of the Bible. It's impossible for that to occur. We have to believe that there was a perfect, originally righteous, pristine, peaceful earth for the first six days until Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Then there was sin, evil, misery, death, a curse, and judgment. All of this happened when Adam and Eve sinned. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.